Good afternoon and welcome to Midday. I'm Ashley Sterner, and today for Tom Hall. Democratic leaders in the General Assembly have made strengthening abortion rights a top priority this year. They're expected to approve a bill that would create a state constitutional right to abortion access. If the amendment passes, voters will decide its fate next fall. This comes as abortion rights are being restricted in many states, following last year's Supreme Court ruling overturning Roe v. Wade. Governor Wes Moore wants Maryland to stand against this tide and be what he calls a safe haven for abortion rights. Abortion rights are not the only rights under assault in many parts of this country. Many Republican-led state legislatures are also working to strip rights from transgender people. The ACLU is tracking more than 300 anti-trans bills that are moving through legislatures nationwide. Many of them focused on younger trans people, but not exclusively. There are bills restricting and criminalizing crucial medical care for youth and adults, bills preventing trans people from performing in public, and much more. Some Maryland leaders are working to shore up the rights and protect the dignity of trans people here in our state. And during this hour, we'll be taking a look at two pieces of legislation before the general assembly that would do that. We're going to start with the Trans Health Equity Act, which got its first hearing before a House of Delegates committee on Tuesday. We are joined by Democratic Delegate Ann Kaiser, who is sponsoring the bill in the House. Delegate Kaiser, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, also with us is Dr. Helene Hedian, Director of Clinical Education at Johns Hopkins Center for Transgender Health and Assistant Vice Chair for LGBTQ plus Equity and Education. Uh, Dr. Hedian, thank you so much for being here as well. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, Delegate Kaiser, uh, let's start with you. Uh, explain what the Trans Health Equity Act would do. Well, thank you so much again. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm joined by 56 of my colleagues in the House of Delegates in sponsoring this legislation, uh, which provides for gender-affirming care uh, being covered by Maryland Medicaid. Uh, And the reason we want to do this is that uh, when private insurers uh, provide care to other Marylanders, we want to ensure that there is equity for our poorer population. So this gender-affirming care which I think uh, Dr. Hedian may better be able to describe, uh, just want to clarify, uh, is only for things that are deemed uh, medically necessary and are based on um, uh, standard standard operating procedures of, of doc- or standards of care of doctors. Uh, and so I'm uh, just delighted to be a part of this legislation and to provide this equity and health care to our transgender Marylanders. The federal government has designated gender-affirming care as an essential health benefit. Um, why is this essential benefit currently not provided through Maryland's Medicaid plan? Uh, Maryland's Medicaid uh, um, plans are based on 20-year-old uh, provisions where only certain uh, procedures were covered. So uh, you would think the federal government saying it would be enough, but we have to update our our law to uh, ensure that all gender affirming care that doctors say that are medically necessary will be covered. So 20 year old uh, statutes in the law that we're following now. Uh, this is not the beginning uh, of the fight here. You've worked on this last year, too, right? Correct. Um, do we know how many people this could impact potentially? Uh, the thought is is that uh, given the population of transgender Marylanders and the um, the expected percentage of how many of them would be on Maryland Medicaid, that this could impact uh, about, I believe the number is 6,000. 
But given that not everyone needs every procedure and not everyone wants it at this point in time, in fact, our analysts with our uh, with our Department of Legislative Services actually predict only about 25 people will take advantage of this um, this option in a given year. So 6,000 potentially able to take this option, only 25 people uh, in total, maybe per year. Um, and this is in a state with a, a population in excess of 6 million people. So while it's not a particularly large percentage of the population, um, it, it is still a decent number of people individually. And the impact that this essential care can have on people's lives is tremendous. Um, Dr. Heedy, and uh, gender affirming care is often a matter of life or death. Um, from trans people. Um, many trans people suffer from uh, what is called gender dysphoria. Can you explain what that is to, to people who do not know? So gender dysphoria refers to a mismatch or an incongruence between a person's gender identity, which is their internal sense of self and how they fit into the world from the perspective of gender, a mismatch between a gender identity and the sex that they were assigned at birth, which can manifest in a few different ways. But when this incongruence causes significant distress, which impacts several areas of their life, then that's when it rises to the level of being diagnosed as gender dysphoria. And I want to clarify, distress is a word that we throw around a lot in in our sort of everyday parlance, but the severity of the distress is can be quite intense. There are patients that I've treated who suffered from chronic suicidality for decades until they finally started hormone therapy and really, really started to flourish. So distress, yes, but it is quite severe in many cases. Um, describe some of the, the people whose uh, distress has, has been eliminated that you've seen in your practice. So um, one patient who comes to mind had uh, had a prior suicide attempt several years before they came to see me for the first time. And when they came in, they said, you know, I don't know if this is what I need, but it's really all I have left. And if I don't start hormones, I think I might not survive. So we went through the informed consent process. We started hormone therapy. And when I saw them at their first follow-up appointment, she said, for the first time, I'm starting to feel happy. Um you know, she'd had chronic depression for a long time. That doesn't go away overnight, but she would just sort of walk down the sidewalk and, and not feel depressed in that moment. And it was a really pivotal point in her life. She's now enrolled in graduate school and, and doing really well. And I, I couldn't be more proud. And this is. And if I could, if I could add at our hearing the other day on Valentine's Day, uh, we had quite a few people sharing their personal stories of just once they were able to get this care, how they were able to move forward with their lives in, in, a, in a more positive way. A lot of, lot of stories. And again, these individual <clears throat> stories, it's not a huge number of people when you compare this to the uh, population of six plus million people in our state. But these individual lives that can be helped um, with this uh, essential care, um, it just helps immensely. It really does. And uh, another patient I'm thinking of who was, whose life was really changed by gender-affirming care is somebody who had a heart attack at the age of 40. She um, had to have heart surgery, and that was really a another sort of moment where she started to 
confront the fact that she was transgender, accept it for herself and start to move forward with her own process of gender affirmation, which for her included hormones and surgery. And in that process of self-acceptance and um, gender affirming care, she was able to lose 60 pounds, which of course helped her other health conditions like diabetes. And, you know, from a purely pragmatic perspective, that saved costs. From a human perspective, she was a much happier person also. And we talked earlier that maybe 25 people might avail themselves uh, per year of the services through through Medicaid. Uh, um, these not as if these services have to be provided year after year after year. Uh, correct, correct. Uh, and and I, I would I would also add, <clears throat> even if it's only 25 people getting the care in a given year, um, even if our estimates are wrong and it's 50 people, it's still not a big number and still not a big cost. But I would also say, given the attacks that are happening on the transgender community in so many states across this nation, uh, passing this legislation in many ways impacts all the thousands of transgender individuals in this state, knowing that the state of Maryland loves them, cares about them, and sees them and sees their humanity. And uh, we mm-hmm. talked about uh, suicidality before um, in, in transgender people. Mm-hmm. Um, we we know that uh, there have been reports of increasing suicide ideation just f- hearing about these attacks uh, that are taking place in states around the country. Um, and yeah, the, the, having having this state uh, being able to affirm that trans people are people and uh, deserve rights uh, goes a long way. It does, and there's a piece of this legislation that's also about equity. I mean, many of the um, procedures that we're talking about expanding coverage for to our Maryland Medicaid population are already covered by private insurers. And so this really is is about sort of balancing the scales and making sure that our low-income Marylanders can also access the care that those with more privilege are already accessing. Um, so, Dr. Hedian, uh Tell us about the the intake process. How does how does somebody go about accessing care in the first place? What is the what is the process here? So um, at my institution, we have several primary care providers, such as myself, who offer gender affirming hormone therapy, and patients can find us by calling the number on our website or or looking up our providers on the website as well. But in an initial appointment, when I first meet somebody. I, I get to know them. I ask about their experience with gender and um, how it has impacted them and what their goals are. The, the process of gender affirmation is highly individualized. As Delegate Kaiser mentioned, not every person is going to need every procedure. And so the goal is really for me to understand each person from an individual perspective, how we can help them and what sorts of other health conditions we might need to manage along the way. Do you ever have people who contact you and after they chat with you realize this is not something they need? For some people, it's a matter of timing. You know, the the process of gender affirmation is complicated. It, it involves a lot of social affirmation is a big part of it, which really just means coming out to friends, family, um, navigating the world as a trans person when the world is often pretty transphobic. And so those changes and adjustments really don't happen overnight. So I I have had patients come to me and say, you know, I'm experiencing gender incongruence. This is care that I would like to pursue ultimately, but maybe can't 
right now because of whatever life circumstances, but I, I want to see a doctor who understands at least my struggle, even if I can't do this right now. One of the consequences of not being able to get essential health care covered um, can push is that trans people can get pushed into underground economies, uh, which can make them disproportionate targets for law enforcement. Later this hour, uh, we'll be talking with a couple folks from the Trans Rights Advocacy Coalition about a bill designed to protect the dignity of trans people in prison. But these issues really are connected, um, health and public safety and, and, and people's futures, right? Uh, yes, and, and I would add that when someone is unable to get uh, these gender-affirming care procedures, that when they are in the community, and I think Dr. Hedian mentioned this at the hearing the other day, uh, the woman who didn't want to speak up at the coffee shop or on the elevator or, or any other time because of that incongruity, because it puts trans people at risk, because unfortunately, there are people out there including some of my colleagues, dehumanizing this population to the point where others find it acceptable to be uh, beyond just discriminating, but to be violent towards this population. And so it's, it's a public health issue from that regard as well. Yes, trans people um, do indeed uh, uh, face disproportionate amounts of violence uh, in, our, in our community, around our country. Um, we, we briefly mentioned um, hormone replacement therapy, HRT. Um, Dr. Hedian, what other sorts of medical care are covered under the blanket of gender-affirming care? Surgeries, um, which can encompass a, a wide variety of things. We commonly talk about top surgery, which might include um, masculinizing or feminizing chest surgery. Bottom surgery can include genital um, surgeries. And then facial surgery or voice surgery. Um, Hormones can have some really dramatic effects sometimes in terms of masculinizing or feminizing, but there are certain aspects of the body that are not necessarily influenced by hormone therapy. Delegate Kaiser mentioned the voice, right? So in a body that's been through a masculine puberty, there's lengthening of the vocal cords, there's thickening of the vocal cords, and that doesn't go away if somebody takes estrogen. And so, you know, Patients can benefit from speech therapy services, which are currently excluded on the Medicaid policy. And some patients may also benefit from a, a vocal surgery to change the frequency of their voice. And, and again, these procedures um, really do save lives. I couldn't, I couldn't say it any better. It's, it is a sad and unfortunate fact in our society today that to be visibly transgender, to have somebody be able to look at you and know that you are transgender, puts you at risk. And that really speaks to a larger problem in our society that people feel empowered to uh, attack or victimize those who they perceive as being part of a different group. But the, there are multiple aspects to this. There's being able to move safely in the world and, and not be visibly transgender. But there is a piece of it that really is unrelated to society at all. Trans people can experience dysphoria regardless of the world around them. And these services really help them get their body into alignment with their experienced gender identity, which is valuable in and of itself. This is 88.1 WYPR. You're listening to Midday. I'm Ashley Sterner in for Tom Hall. Uh, Delegate Kaiser, uh, the Trans Health Equity Act got its first hearing before the House of Delegates, uh, before a committee in the House uh, on Tuesday. What happened at Tuesday's hearing? It's a great question. Um, 
at the hearing, I I spoke first, and Dr. Hedian and four other um, advocates slash experts joined me, and we testified, and we told the story, and we talked about what this legislation legislation would do, and how it would help, and who it would help, and why it costs so little. Uh, it was a long hearing; it was, it was a little over two hours. Uh, there were lots of questions for us, uh, both friendly questions and uh, really unfriendly questions. And at the core of those unfriendly questions were really the belief that the trans community is is an other and, and doesn't belong. Uh, though their their questions were masked in in concerns of. Uh, cost and it's like less than one tenth of one percent of our Medicaid budget and um, you know other concerns that just aren't real but are trying to to mask this um, sense of keeping trans people as other uh, have you heard from uh, Governor Westmore's <clears throat> administration um, about what they plan to do on this I, I believe it is uh, the, the governor's intent to sign this legislation he he spoke in favor of this specific legislation during the campaign trail. We've heard it confirmed that they're glad to sign on. And what you see now from the governor is not from the governor's office, but from his Department of Health coming in, uh, as they call it, not just support, but support with amendment, wanting to make some technical changes in, in regard to some details in regard to Medicaid, but in general, supporting the, the thrust of the legislation. As I mentioned, this legislation um, was uh, proposed last year. It did not uh, go through. What are the next steps as we continue during this year's session? Uh, the next steps, um, the the official steps after we've had this hearing, at some point in the next six or seven weeks, it, it won't be immediate. There will be a, um, meetings within our subcommittee and the um Health and Government Operations Committee, and then a vote, and then a vote in the full committee, and then it will go to the full house. And those are the things that people see. But in the meantime, uh, what's happening is that uh, this very large coalition of over 30 organizations are working with and meeting and talking to my colleagues and trying to uh, put that story, that humanity out there and trying to convince more people um, if, if we were to take the vote today, I believe we have the votes, uh, but it would be nice to uh, get a few more people on board. Uh, so we're going to keep having those conversations. And uh, so anyone out there who is, is in favor of the bill uh, should reach out to their legislators. Uh, they could certainly reach out to the Trans Rights Advocacy Coalition or to my office and find out who some of those legislators are that need uh, a friendly push and, but it goes back to what we talked about before. It's the stories, it's the humanity. It's not attacking people who aren't with us right now. It's telling the stories and making them realize um, that this is about equity, it's about fairness. And um, yes, it's just that we, we need the stories. And uh, Dr. Hedian, for anyone who is uh, considering perhaps needing uh, gender-affirming care, what would you suggest they do? I think that they should reach out to us at the Johns Hopkins Center for Transgender and Gender Expansive Health. We have a, a clinical intake phone number that they can give a call. 
we have a list of providers on our website who offer different services. Um, if they are outside of the local area, GLAMA, the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, has a provider directory where clinicians can self-identify as offering care for the trans community. And that can be an excellent uh, resource and tool to help find a healthcare provider who understands what it is to be transgender and can help give you um, respectful and high quality care. That's Dr. Helene Hedian, Director of Clinical Education at Johns Hopkins Center for Transgender Health and Assistant Vice Chair for LGBTQ plus Equity and Education. We're also joined this morning, or rather this afternoon, by Delegate Ann Kaiser, who represents parts of Montgomery County in the House of Delegates. Thank you both for joining us, and thank you so much for your work. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you so much for having us. Midday continues in just a moment um, where we will take a look at another key piece of legislation before the General Assembly, one that would support the safety of trans people held by Maryland's Department of Public Safety and Correctional Services. I'm Ashley Sterner. Stay with us. You're tuned to 88.1 WYPR. Welcome back to Midday. I'm Ashley Sterner, in today for Tom Hall. Quick look ahead to tomorrow's show, where we will be focusing on some of the latest stories in science and tech. We'll discuss spy balloons and unidentified flying objects, the benefits and concerns of generative AI, and whether a robot can become a friend. We'll also get our weekly review from theater critic Judy Russick. All of that tomorrow on Midday. Now we continue our focus on the rights of transgender people in Maryland with a look at how trans folks are treated in our state's correctional services system. Studies show that transgender people suffer significantly higher rates of violence while incarcerated than the rest of the prison population, and members of the General Assembly are looking to address that with a bill called the Transgender Respect, Agency, and Dignity Act. It'll get its first hearing in the House Judiciary Committee next week. Earlier, I spoke with the co-conveners of the Trans Rights Advocacy Coalition, Margot Quinlan of the Mental Health Association, and Jamie Grace Alexander, Policy Coordinator for Free State Justice. When we started our conversation, Jamie explained how the bill came together in the first place. So it was actually after the death of Kim Wirtz, who was a transgender woman. She died in 2021 in Baltimore City Central Booking under corrections care, which was extremely upsetting for our community. And we're used to hearing about and even experiencing this physical and sexual violence. But death while, you know, being in jail is just horrible. And so community organizations like Baltimore Safe Haven were really rising up and demanding prison reform. And Free State Justice, my organization, as the organization who is the legal and advocacy representation for the LGBT community here in Maryland, we really wanted to take up that cause because like, we just don't want to forget about our incarcerated community. And that's actually how the bill's Senate sponsor Senator Carter heard about the bill is um, one of her staff was attending the rally and she's such a strong advocate on prison reform. So she really knows that the 
conditions that we face while in corrections are are terrible. So it really was a no-brainer for her to loop in with us on this bill. What sorts of problems do transgender people face within the prison system? Well, I want to open by saying that being in a correctional facility is no cakewalk for anybody regardless of their identity, but for our community, the outcomes can be really deadly and the avenues for redress can be less. And I think it's important to note, too, that like LGBTQ people are more likely to be the victims of violence and assaults than the general prison population. And transgender people in particular, 50% of transgender inmates report um, experiencing sexual assault while incarcerated, which is more than 10 times the general prison population rate. And so by and large, our community, we are the victims of violence while incarcerated. Yeah, and people who go into prison for whatever reason, they're not signing up to be assaulted. But that happens so much anyway, and it's so much worse for trans people. Absolutely. You know, this is not part of people's sentence, regardless of what they do. We're not working with the perfect victim because if you're in corrections, then the system already thinks that you've done something wrong and to some degree believes that you deserve these things happening to you. But we patently disagree. You know, this is not part of people's sentence and this is not something that our community deserves regardless of what they've done. And this is something that uh, lawmakers have tried to address uh, in the prison population at large, but it's still not being realized. There are a few um, policies and procedures, both at the state and federal level, that are supposed to address the rampant violence, um, like the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which is a federal guideline. That's supposed to assess whether somebody is at risk of being assaulted versus somebody who is at risk of perpetrating an assault. But the results of that, if you are a transgender person, you can be designated as at risk and then put within your birth gender's population in an at-risk setting, but there's no housing outside of your assigned sex. So let's get to the legislation that's going on before the House Judiciary Committee next week, the uh, Transgender Respect Agency and Dignity Act. What exactly would this legislation do? Sure. So in addition to that housing piece, which I've touched on already, there's also non-discrimination policy being put in place, as well as changing the intake procedure, um, because from what we've been hearing about people who've been through the system and are now out, um, sometimes PREA is not being followed. People are not being asked the right questions upon intake to keep them safe when they're actually being placed in jail or prison. But then there's an additional piece that addresses involuntary administrative segregation, which is um, solitary confinement. Um, And I just want to say solitary confinement is torture. And the difference between solitary confinement and involuntary administrative segregation, according to the department, is that involuntary administrative segregation is for the safety of the person who is being placed in solitary confinement. Basically, We don't know which gender to house you in as a trans person. We don't have the facilities or the manpower to keep you safe, so we'll house you by yourself, which is a human rights violation. Does this happen a lot? 
It does. Yeah, it happens to trans people in particularly high numbers, but it is important to note that these are issues that the community faces at large. LGBTQ people um, sort of across our community um, report being held in solitary confinement at really high rates, uh, almost 85%. Um, and 50%. 85%. And 50% of those say that they were held in confinement for their protection, but against their will. So it's this this sort of misdirection of saying that we're doing this to keep you safe, but it's not sort of in respect to their autonomy and safety and well-being. And so it's putting people in confinement um, rather than dealing with, you know, what needs to be dealt with and actually creating safe conditions for people. So the housing part of this legislation, uh, determining where uh, people are housed within the prison system, uh, that is designed to make it so prisons don't just put people in solitary confinement because they can't figure it out? That's one piece of what it does. Um, Currently, um, you can request a housing transfer like within the policies that are on the books already, but there's no way to address transgender people who are, for example, a transgender woman who's housed within a male population. She can be replaced within that male population to somewhere where the correctional facility might think that she's safer, but she cannot be transferred to a women's facility. Um, And another important piece of this legislation is that it doesn't force that, it just allows the trans person to request that. So in the case of transgender men who might actually be safer in a women's population or prefer to be a women's population, they can choose to be in that population or request a transfer if that's what they believe would make them safer. And there's no, like, requirement that that transfer will take place? There is no requirement. And in fact, there's, like, provisions that prevent, um, basically, if it would present, like, a management concern, like, making somebody else unsafe, then that housing request would be denied. Something else that's really important about the housing transfer process of this bill is that it doesn't allow the department to categorically deny somebody based on their gender, their sex, their sexual orientation, which are all things that they're currently able to do. You talked about the intake procedures that this would address. Uh, How would this legislation change that? You know, again, looking just at the title of the bill, you know, we're talking about respect, we're talking about agency, um, we're talking about the autonomy um, of individuals to be able to make decisions for themselves and to be able to declare, um, you know, where they feel they will be safest. But it would let, you know, if if a trans woman was um, detained and going through the intake process, she'd be able to identify um, if she wanted to that, you know, I am a transgender woman, I would feel most safe or comfortable in a women's unit um, and make that request to the facility and have a process to follow um, to ensure that that, you know, request gets um, heard and sort of received. And the process of screening people for their gender identity, as well as asking people their pronouns upon intake, would give us better numbers um, to know how many transgender people are in corrections, and then also better avenues for redress, because these community organizations, like my organization in Baltimore Safe Haven, can't do anything to change the problems that we're seeing. You know, we can receive a collect call from somebody who's in jail saying, you know, I'm not getting my hormones. I'm getting sexually assaulted in the shower. I'm, you know, an officer beat me. And there's very little that we can do. And back to the point that you made earlier about data, we just don't have enough data at this point to even say how many trans people there are in Maryland prisons. That's very true. Um, The best data that we have is PREA data, which is the Prison Rape Elimination Act, which 
ask people more broadly if they're part of the LGBT community as one of the questions that would put them at risk of violence. So there's definitely like a federal correlation between LGBT identity and being at risk in corrections. But we've also seen that that those numbers are often like underreported. There's a lot of reasons why somebody might not want to out themselves at intake. But yeah, we we want to know where our community is and what their experience is and how to best keep them safe. What sorts of um, opposition are you receiving as you work to advance this legislation in Annapolis? Plenty. (laughs) Um, I would say that there are a lot of people who are functioning on outdated ideas of transgender people, um, oversimplified narratives of transgender women who are just saying that they're trans in order to game the system and gain access to cis women. And that isn't reflected in my knowledge or our knowledge of our community. And the process of identifying as and being out as trans is not something that gives somebody significant advantages over somebody else. And the idea that it would, that trans people would somehow receive special treatment when the reality is that trans people face staggering rates of violence, it's it's honestly really insulting to be a part of these conversations because the questions that were being asked don't align with the lived experiences of people in our community who've been through this. We spoke earlier uh, in today's show about the difficulties for trans people to get gender-affirming care. These difficulties actually end up making it so that trans people are disproportionately represented, uh, disproportionately targeted by the criminal justice system. That's right. And it's a really great point. I mean, what happens when we don't have access to health care is, is that we, um, you know, we do everything we can to make sure that we get the care we need, to make sure that we get the hormones we need, to make sure that we get the care and support that we need as trans people. And for a lot of us, that means, um, you know, using turning to underground economies um, or doing, you know, sex work or whatever is going to sort of help us to get funds to stay stable and to support um, our medical needs. It also, you know, really, I think, leads to and is at the root of our lack of access to healthcare is at the root of a lot of the discrimination that we face in housing, um, the discrimination that we face in employment, the discrimination we face on the street. And so it leads to all of these um, just disparate health outcomes and mental health outcomes and safety outcomes that for um, us also leads to really high rates of over uh, policing and over incarceration. And then, you know, we face even worse odds once we are um, land in Maryland's prisons and jails. And if I may tie something into that, um, something was the opposition naming that a large percentage of transgender women are incarcerated due to sex crimes. And I was Mm -hmm. like, where are they getting that statistic from? Lo and behold, they're counting sex work as a sex crime, Mm -hmm. um, making it seem like transgender women are in there for Predatory reasons. Exactly. When, When, in fact, it's nothing of the sort. Exactly. Yeah. So we can see how statistics can be warped to fit the narratives that are oppositional to this cause. 
So as I mentioned, there is going to be a hearing on this bill in the House Judiciary Committee next week. Um, What should people be prepared to hear? Uh, What can people do? Yep. And so the hearing's taking place next week. Um, It's sponsored by this bill on the House side is sponsored by Delegate Leslie Lopez, who's just been a really um, great advocate on this issue and has really dug in and has been committed to this fight with us. And I think the things that you're going to hear, you know, a a lot of us are going to be up there sharing about our experiences, sharing some of the data that we've shared today, really trying to remind folks that, you know, trans people and LGBTQ people, again, we're the, you know, just so disproportionately the victims of violence and abuse and assault while we're incarcerated. Um, And in our conversations and our organizing, we've been making sure to lift up that um, just really critical intersection, you know, that we experience with healthcare discrimination and then discrimination from police and discrimination and harassment in jails. And all of these things are very much connected. And so we've been relaying that message to um, the House leadership, to the Senate leadership, to um, staff within the new administration, Governor Moore's team, and talking about these bills. And and our bill next week, House Bill 426, you know, if people um, are listening and, and, um, you know, want to take some action, we ask you to just call your representatives, you know, at the state level and and ask them to support this bill. Um, Talk to your friends and family, you know, really humanizing the sort of breadth and beauty of trans experience has gone a long way in our organizing and just bringing folks who maybe just didn't have an opinion or or had sort of absorbed some of the mistruths that flowed out there about us um, has brought a lot of them onto our side. And at the end of the day, we're just asking for the sort of basic level of rights and dignity and safety and protections that any Marylander would demand and ask for. And, you know, we think that we deserve that as well. So thank you both so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Margot Quidlin of the Mental Health Association, Jamie Grace Alexander, Policy Coordinator for Free State Justice. They are the co-founders of the Trans Right Advocacy Coalition. You're listening to Midday. I'm Ashley Sterner in for Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is your NPR news station, 88.1 WYPR. Welcome back to Midday. I'm Ashley Sterner, sitting in for Tom Hall. After talking about the challenges that trans people face in getting health care and in dealing with our state's criminal justice system, not necessarily happy topics, uh, we wanted to close out this show with a little bit of trans joy. And uh, for that, we are joined by Emily Scott, pastor at St. Mark's Lutheran Church in Baltimore, founder of Dreams and Vision, an LGBTQ plus congregation in partnership with St. Mark's. Pastor Emily, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Ashley. It's so good to be here. So tell us some stories about how trans people in your uh, congregation have been thriving. Oh, I have so many stories. And while um, I certainly have witnessed all of the difficult hardships that trans folks experience here in Baltimore and around the state um, that we've been talking about during this hour, one of the most wonderful parts of my job is being able to see my trans congregants really thrive in their lives. And um, as they continue along in their journey toward actualization and stepping into their full sense of self, it's incredible to see them blossom. Um, Some of my congregants are beautiful writers who write beautiful poetry and prayers. Um, I have some amazing musicians in my congregation, someone who's becoming involved in fashion design, um, and it's just beautiful to see them thriving. But I think one of the 
stories and places where we see that most in our congregation is um, a tradition that we have every year that's called Queer Christmas, which is where we have a Christmas pageant that is acted out by all trans and queer folks. And the experience of seeing usually a young teenage trans girl put on a halo and become Mary in this pageant is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen because um, we're so often told that we're not part of the stories um, in the Bible, but those stories are for us too. And that's really what we're um, enacting out and experiencing when we um, take part in that pageant together. I mean, a lot of churches are decidedly not Um, Mm trans-friendly. How do you see our place uh, in the church and in biblical tradition? I think that Trans folks are an integral part of biblical tradition and an integral part of our congregation. I myself am genderqueer and non-binary, and my spouse, who's also a Lutheran pastor, is trans. Um, And it's amazing to see what we bring to spiritual life. I think because trans folks have had to fight so hard to understand where we belong in the world and who we are, um, to understand our own sense of identity, there's a very deep engagement with um, spiritual conversation. But, you know, we hear so much rhetoric in our world right now from the Christian right about um, trans people. Uh, Many of those, most of those voices and all of those voices, I would say, have no to little experience of what it means to be trans and to live in a trans body. Um, And there is so much theology that really shows that trans folks are part of God's world. Um, One example that I like to give is that of the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, who is the first Gentile convert to Christianity. Um, And he is a a eunuch who has traveled to Jerusalem to be part of um, temple celebrations. And even though he's not allowed to enter the temple because of the law at that time, um, he finds a place in God's story and becomes someone who um, really brings this message of love um, to the world. So... Also, I could talk about Joseph, which is its own beautiful thing. Please do. <laughs> do you want to hear about yes, Joseph? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. So Joseph, who we all probably remember, many of us might remember from Sunday school as um, having a coat of many colors. If you look carefully at the Hebrew word that's used in the Bible, um, it's actually the same word that's used to describe the dress of Tamar, who is a princess. And so it's a very ornate and beautiful dress that Joseph wears. And you start to put together a picture where you think like, okay, Joseph's wearing a beautiful dress and he's his father's favorite and all of his brothers really don't like him and like throw him into a pit and like basically sell him off into some other place. He experiences violence and um, you start to see that Joseph is someone who did not align with some of the gender norms of his day. So there are stories like this woven all through the Bible, but I think because... And now I just want to hear all of these stories. (laughs) All the stories. (laughs) But because biblical interpretation for for most of Christian history has been... um, has been performed by cis, white, wealthy men, I think we have seen the Bible through their perspective. But when you start to read the Bible um, from other voices that stand in other places, perhaps on the margins, you start to see much more of the richness and diversity um, that the Bible holds. Uh, You've um, uh, uh, worked with people who are uh, affected by the issues we've spoken with earlier in the show, Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, criminal justice and Mm -hmm. and, and health. Um, How do you see the role of your faith in social justice uh, in this country, in our state? Oh, well, I just I really would like to see um, Christians who affirm the humanity and dignity of all people speaking out uh, more loudly and more boldly because we are living in a in a world right now that's become so politicized um, 
especially around inhumane legislation um, of trans folks. And so I think it's really part of our role as Christians and as people of faith, people who are rooted in broader traditions of faith, um, to speak out on these issues and to make sure that everyone has the opportunity to thrive. Um, in my tradition as a Lutheran and as a Christian, um, God created us to be um, to thrive in the world and to live into our calls. Um, there's a lot of language in the Christian tradition about being reborn and remade and made new by God. And we want to give people that um, ability to live into something new in their life and to, um, yeah, to thrive and to um, live into their call. Um, you've got a couple things that your church is working with. Um, the LGBTQ plus thrift store mm -hmm. that's opening for the summer. Yeah, so we got a grant. We we're very lucky to get a grant from the Baltimore Community Foundation to start up a thrift store. And one of the things that I think can be um, a really kind of tender and difficult moment when folks are first coming out as transgender is um, buying clothes. And um, it can also be extremely expensive. You have to buy a whole new wardrobe. Um, for some of us, um, you might want to invest in wigs, and those are really expensive. Expensive. Makeup's really expensive. Um, and finding shoes in the right sizes for trans masculine folks and trans feminine folks can be really challenging and expensive. Um, so we're hoping to create a space that is a really joyful place to shop, um, to find clothes that are um, suited for trans folks. Um, we're hoping to have thrifted clothing and then also um, some corporate donations of new items that we can um, have available at much lower prices. That's our hope. And also to just create an environment where shopping can be really joyful for trans people. Um, because I think um, for those who are trans and listening, we probably all have a memory of like going into the section of the store that you've never been in before and kind of feeling like a spotlight was going to shine on you and be like, alert, alert, like this person is shopping in a section that we don't expect them to shop in. And it's really um, scary and vulnerable. So being able to shop in a place where someone can help you find the right size and um, you can have a workshop about like bra fittings, like all of these things are very new. And um, I think when our community comes together to really support one another and say, um, we've been through this before and we can help you walk through it too. That's important. And in the minute or so we have left, um, what other ways are, are is your ministry working to help trans people? I think walking alongside people through whatever they might be experiencing in terms of some of those harder parts of being trans, um, visiting folks in prison when um, they are imprisoned and advocating from them for them as much as we can, um, walking with people through the difficult pieces of coming out, um, and then creating a community where we worship together and are just able to... Um, Worship in a way that expresses who we are in a space that reflects who we are. When do you hold services? Sunday afternoons at 4 p.m. And we actually have a work day for a thrift store coming up this Sunday at 2.30, if anyone is interested. Okay. Uh, Pastor Emily Scott is with St. Mark's Lutheran Church here in Baltimore and with uh, Dreams and Visions, uh, the LGBTQ plus congregation that she founded. Thank you so much for joining us today and taking part in this show. Thank you so much. Uh, and a special thanks today to Margo Quinlan for absolutely invaluable help uh, in putting this show together. Um, that is it for today's edition of Midday. Coming up tomorrow... We'll have the latest in science and in tech, spy balloons, flying objects, generative AI, chat GPT, and making friends with robots. Also, our friend theater critic Judy Russick will be by with a review. That's tomorrow on Midday at Noon. In for Tom Hall today, I am Ashley Sterner. I will be back here at this time tomorrow for those tech talks. And before that, why not wake up with me tomorrow for Morning Edition, starting at 5 a.m.? 
thank you so much for joining us today. Here and now is coming up next. You're tuned to 881 WYPR.